listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. chapter 9, verse 51. Um, Luke chapter 1, 1 to chapter 9 and verse 50 covers the first section of Luke and we begin the second section of Luke now and we look at sort of the, the, the travel, the journey of Jesus from where he is currently in the text all the way to Jerusalem. Um, reminds me of us last week, last Thursday, we had uh, an itinerary, me and my wife, we jumped in the car and drove to um, Landrum, South Carolina and met at a restaurant to eat with a friend of ours. Then we went to her home and sat and talked with her and spent the night there. Her husband recently passed and then got up the next morning and sat and talked for a while, but we still had an itinerary. We had an agenda. We left there and drove down I-26, down uh, to to I-20 across over to Wilmington, North Carolina, and then I had the privilege of spending the weekend with a friend of mine, uh, Jimmy Suggs, at Oak Valley Church there in Wilmington, and it was their third anniversary, and so um, they asked me to uh, preach, and we gathered there with a group of people and then ate lunch with them and got back in the car and drove back home. We understand um, having a goal, a destination, uh, heading out on a trip, uh, having an itinerary, making plans. The text we're looking at this morning is Jesus doing exactly that. He's gathering his, his disciples, he's gathering the crowd that's following him, and he's saying things are going to change moving forward. So as we read the text, keep that in mind. The text is going to tell us that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, and Isaiah 50 tells us that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Um, nothing was going to move him from going to Jerusalem. And we'll dive into that a little bit as we look at this text this morning. But um, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, we move to the second section. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, don't, don't lose sight of what's going on here because this section to the end of chapter 9 is, is bracketed with Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem, right? He's focused on Jerusalem, and, and he closes it out by saying, if any man sets his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not fit for the kingdom of heaven. What does he say? If you're going to plow a field, you've got, to, you've got to have your eyes set at the end of the row because if you're constantly looking to the left or to the right, then you're going to have a bunch of crooked rows and nobody's going to know what you're trying to do out there in the field. And so the, the thought is the, the same. The thought is the same not only for what Jesus is doing, but for those who are going to say that they want to follow him. They're, they're, they're putting their hand to the plow. They're, they're setting their sight on the goal, and that's what the text is telling us. Verse 52, though, he's going to send his advance team out and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a great statement. 
Jesus then tells him what it means to follow him. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now, his father hadn't died yet. His father may not have even been sick yet, but he was saying, Let me go and wait until my father dies and then let me bury him. Generally in their culture, if somebody died, you buried him as quickly as possible. So if his father was already dead... Jesus is not being inhumane or insensitive, but if his father was already dead, they would have probably already buried him, right? So it's not like the processes that we go through with all of the different things. So this guy was basically just saying, yeah, I want to follow you, but there's some things that are a higher priority than following you at this point. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say, farewell to those at my home. That would, again, be another lengthy process. That wouldn't be just a matter of sending a text message. That would be you going and making the rounds and having all of these parties to say farewell. This is verse 62. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So everything is about the kingdom of God. God. We move on to chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Again, he's talking about plowing at the last verse of chapter 9. Now he goes into the concept of a harvest. And this is the agrarian society. They would understand that. We don't understand that. But they would understand what it would be like to see a harvest that you didn't have enough people to harvest. It's going to lay out in the field and it's going to rot. And Jesus uh, mentions that um, in the other, uh, the other gospels. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He sends the 72 out. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the road. Again, greetings in the road could be rather lengthy, and there is a mission that needs to be accomplished. So don't, don't waste any time. Don't let anything distract you from the mission. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you eat, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat whatever is set before you. And again, I'm not sure why he's doing this. One house may have had bologna sandwiches and another house may have had caviar. I don't know. Uh, maybe word goes around, this house sells, or is serving the best food. Go to that house. No, you go to the house and whatever they're serving you. You, you eat that. And, and then he moves into the, the messaging component of it. Heal the sick in it in that town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But, whatever, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. 
goes now to these towns on the north of the Sea of Galilee that he went to that didn't respond to his ministry. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. And this is the principle that he's getting at finally in verse 16. And this could apply to us. We don't know these cities. We don't know these towns. But we have the opportunity to open God's word and to, to hear God's word and to, to, to experience the movement of the spirit and the leadership of the spirit. What is God doing? Are we even looking for what God is doing? Are we even concerned about what God is doing? And he says in verse 16, to the one who hears, you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So there are these people that are being sent out. You're going to come across people that are going to reject you. You're going to come across people that are going to receive the message. How do we respond to that? Better yet, how do you respond when you hear? When you hear, when the Spirit moves, when the Word is proclaimed. The 72 return, verse 17. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And, and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So there is this sensational component to their ministry. He says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Verse 21 now, Jesus in the Spirit, they're talking. We see this conversation between Jesus and the Father, and Jesus is amazed at the plan of the Father. And he says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, to the nobodies. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And Jesus has revealed himself and the Father to these followers here in this text. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Uh, we're going to break the text down in, in four, uh, four simple sections this morning. I, I first of all, I want us to look at, at the first section and closing out um, Luke chapter 9 and, and look, at, look at the destination, what Jesus is aiming uh, toward. And the first thing we see is the plan of the Father. The days were, were drawing near. The days were reaching uh, fulfillment. In other words, in the life of Christ, God the Father has a plan for His Son. God has a schedule for His Son. And He's moving toward the time when He will be taken up. That's terminology that's used of um, Elijah the, the prophet when Elijah was taken up in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verses 9 to 11. It's a reference to the death to the resurrection and to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus now is leaving where he is, and he's beginning a journey through um, the next nine chapters or so going to uh, Jerusalem. We're going to see Jesus doing less miracles and more teaching. We're going to see 17 parables, 
15 of which are unique to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to see in the teaching of Jesus that 44% of the material in this section that we're going to begin covering over the next few weeks through chapter 19 and verse number 44 is a section where 44% of that material is unique to the Gospel of Luke. A lot of the material, some of it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, some's in John, but, but we are seeing, going to see some unique material, at least about half of it, in this text. And so as we begin to look at this, we see uh, Jesus as his destination in all of the text moving forward, and it's repeated over and over again. Jesus is pressing on toward Jerusalem to be taken up for his death, for his resurrection, and for his ascension. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. That was the Father's plan. So the, the, the Father's plan is for His Son to go to Jerusalem to die for you and to die for me that we might have eternal life. But we not only see the Father's plan, um, that the days drew near for Him to be taken up, but how did Jesus respond to the Father's plan? He set His face to go to Jerusalem. That's direct terminology from Isaiah chapter 50 that's speaking of the suffering servant. That's pointing forward to Christ who is coming. He's, he's going and he knows he's going to be victimized. He knows he's going to suffer. He knows he's going to die. But he also knows that he's going there to be vindicated. And he's going there to be victorious. The, the, the point that we need to grasp from that is this, that Jesus trusted the heart of the Father. No matter, no matter what he was going to be taken through, because this was the plan of the Father, Jesus trusted the, the heart and the sovereign hand of the Father. And I would ask you as we have our lives upended, do you trust the Father? Do you trust the plan of the Father. The plan of the Father was for His Son to suffer. The plan of the Father was for His Son to die. The plan of the Father was for His Son to be raised. And so here Jesus is before all of that happens, and Jesus is ordering His life around the Father's will because He had complete confidence in God. I'm not sure what you're ordering your life around this morning, but whatever we're ordering our life around is a reflection of where our confidence lies. If you're ordering your life around what uh, you, you, the plan that you've made, the strategy that you've come up with, if you're ordering your life around success, if you're ordering your life around security, if you're ordering your life around health, we all are ordering our lives around something, and that, by the way, is the basis of our disappointment. Because we order our lives around things that don't produce joy in our heart. Jesus Christ ordered his heart, his life, his plan, his focus, his energy around the plan of the Father. Because, not because he knew everything and not because he thought everything was going to get better or somehow the Father was going to protect him from suffering. He ordered his plan around the Father because he knew that the Father was good. He had complete confidence in the Father. And so he set his face like a flint. He set his face and it could not be moved, it could not be cracked, it could not be swayed, it could not be moved in one direction or the other. And he knew there would be opposition and he knew there would be difficulty and he knew that there would be suffering. But he said, the Father's got a plan and I'm going to set my face toward Jerusalem and I'm going to experience all that the Father has for me in his plan. I'm not going to be distracted, I'm not going to waver, I'm not going to turn to the left, I'm not going to turn to the right, I'm not going to be 
deterred. We move from that to see potential responses and, um, and challenges of, of well-intentioned people. Jesus sent out his advanced team. And I, I would say, and I've said this before, for those of us who know Christ, there should be a sense of sentness. A sense of sentness. Uh, Jesus has called me to come and join him in something. And so he, he sends us out. He sends out his advanced team. There's a group of people that don't receive him um, in, in uh, Samaria. Uh, if you want to go to forward to Acts chapter 8, you can see that they did receive him in Samaria. A great revival when Philip the Evangelist went there and preached. Broke out in Samaria, and it was a, it was a glorious time in Samaria. And, and the point, I think, is not the, the response of the Samaritans, but the response of, of, uh, of James and John. James and John saw that Christ was dishonored. James and John saw that the message of the kingdom was rejected. And James and John, they were just like, hey... Um, let's kill them. Let's kill them. Right? Um, you ever experienced anything like that? You're just like, man, this is the plan of God. This is the will of God. Do you want to be a part of the will of God or not? And um, Jesus has set his face. Jesus is like, put your hand to the plow. Hey, are you going to join us? Are you going to go get on board with us? And and um, uh, have you, has anybody ever prayed an imprecatory? Have you ever read an imprecatory psalm, a psalm where David's like, "Yeah, kill my enemies and shut their mouths, and and you know, let diseases come on them, let them get leprosy, let them die, let them have all kind of problems." And uh, I mean, sometimes I read through there and I and I I see some faces, you know. It's like, yes, Lord, that would be great if you would just wipe them out. Life would be. Easier, and they're like, Lord, you, you, you're, you're, you know. But Jesus is like, no, 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 we, no, 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 no. That's not my kingdom. My kingdom's not like that. My kingdom is a gracious kingdom. My kingdom is a compassionate kingdom. My kingdom just flows with compassion, even for those who reject me, even for those who don't like me, even for those who are trying to stop my mission. I don't, I don't think we need to lose sight of that because a lot of times we go out on mission into the world like this, right? And we're deflecting blows and we're left hooks, right? Crosses, you know, and, and groin kicks and all these different kind of things that we can do because we're so angry and we're so bitter. And these guys are just like, this is how they operate. They, they, they understood that fire had been called, called down in the Old Testament and they were uh, probably operating on the basis of Old Testament prophets and so they wanted to call down some fire. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how this... He rebuked them. Move on to the next village. Continue to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So there's the response of the Samaritans, but then there are these responses that we see in the text here, and we can we can add add these things up in so many ways, and we can we can use the text to try to produce shame. I don't respond well when somebody's trying to shame me into doing something. Um, although although shame is just the way we operate, it's just the way we function, right? We we do that with our kids. Like, why didn't you make a why didn't you make an A? You made a B. Shame on you. And we may not use the word shame, but we try to. Shame people. This is what you should do. This is what you're not doing. Um, and, and so Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't shame them. He was, just, he was just very straightforward with them. And I would say most of us are probably right here with these guys. Right? 
Most of us are right here with these guys. Most of us are not there with the 72 just going from city to city to city. Most of us are just trying to figure out how to make life work the way we think it should work and the way we want it to work. And so um, I, think I'm, I think I'm probably right here, you know, making excuses, procrastinating, making statements that sound really good but never acting on them. I'll follow you, Jesus, anywhere you go. Oh, yeah, did anybody hear that? <laughs> did anybody hear me say that? Did anybody read what I've got on my T-shirt this week? You see my bumper sticker? You see my necklace? You see my earrings? You see what I got on my hat? At least on Sunday. Right? We're, we're, we're there. This guy comes up, and, and he's naive. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus tells him, no, this, this is not easy. This is not easy. You, you want to be in the kingdom? You want to be in the kingdom? It's not easy. You want to follow Jesus? It's not easy. Um, another comes up and Jesus says, follow me. And again, not, not, not only is, is he naive, but, but, but let's face it, he, he is, he's making an idol of his circumstances. He's making an idol of his circumstances. He's just making excuses. The Son of God comes to you and me and says, come be with me. Come be with me. Just drop everything and come be with me. And we, we have a million excuses that are our idols. We make idols of our excuses. And, 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 and once, once we set those excuses into motion, they just keep repeating like, uh, like a, a record that plays over and over and over again. And then, and then the, the last one is just like, just, this just pure and simple procrastination. It's easy to say you're following Jesus so long as you don't have to do it right now. And that's where uh, most of us are. We talk about following Jesus. And let me just, let me just try to make some, some simple application as we close out this, this first section. Some thoughts that kind of hit me as I was looking at it. There's no, ha there, there's no way to halfway follow Jesus. There's just no way to halfway follow Jesus. And I think that's just where most of us probably are. We've got a foot in the world, and we're struggling with the issues of the world, and we've got, we've got a foot that wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus invites us. Come and take the plunge. Just dive in completely. There is no way to halfway follow Jesus. Secondly, our need to follow Jesus Christ far outweighs anything else that we have to do in this world. Our need, our passion, our desire... What we get out of following Jesus far outweighs anything else that we think we need to have or do in this world. So here is, here is God the Son looking at you and me and saying, follow me. And that invitation has with it the meeting of our greatest needs if we will join him in what he's doing. Follow him. Forget, forget our excuses. Um, but it also has to move us to ask ourselves, where is life? Where is life? Is life in making bold, impressive statements? I will follow you, Jesus. 
Where is life? Is life in ceaselessly, ceaselessly trying to tie up loose ends with good intentions of eventually following Jesus at some point in the future once I get all the important stuff worked out? I will follow you, Jesus. I had a friend who worked for GM, and he sensed the call to follow Jesus. And he had six months left before his retirement vested, and he quit. You're like, oh, I, just, I just need to wait until I can get to this place before I can really follow Jesus. Where is life? Is life in taking months to travel around and tell everyone goodbye because you eventually plan to join Jesus on mission? Where is life? Life is wherever Jesus is. Jesus says, follow me. Don't put anything between you and him. Do whatever you need to do to join him in whatever he's doing. Jesus said, follow me. And then he makes this, you know, hand to the plow statement. Um, maybe, maybe you've seen a field before. Maybe you've plowed a field before. People go to great pains to make sure they have straight rows. A lot of things are involved in that. I'm not sure that I understand all of them except when I went to my first church in Harrells, North Carolina, and Milton Marshburn plowed me up a, a ground of an acre of ground for me to plant my garden. Um, uh, I knew everybody was riding by to see what my garden looked like. So I had to keep it looking good. And maybe that has something to do with the rose, or maybe it has something to do with erosion or how the, the, the water drains, or maybe it has to do with somebody passing by knowing what's in the field so you can know how to harvest it. A lot of things are going on here, but Jesus is basically saying you've got this goal. This goal is to be in the harvest, and in the harvest we are laboring in the harvest, and we're not like everybody else in this text, just looking over here and giving our attention here and looking over here and giving our attention here, and all of a sudden you don't even know where you're going with the plow, and you can't even have a row beside a row. It's kind of like we went to Chick-fil-A yesterday, and please, 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 I beg you, there are white lines there. Please. If you will try to get in the center of the white lines, when I pull in, I can get in the center of my white lines and I can open my car door and not hit your car. And you can open your car door and not hit my car. Or else if you cross the line, then I've got to cross the line. And then the guy beside me got to cross the line. And that just is very disconcerting to me when people can't park between the lines. Is anybody else bothered by that? So you're like, what were you thinking when you parked in that parking space? And I'll tell you what they were thinking. They were thinking nobody else in the cotton-picking world mattered. That's what they were thinking. The mission matters. The master matters. And if you're going to be on mission and if you're going to be with Jesus, what Jesus is doing matters. And if we're going to go into the harvest and if we're going to plow and if we're going to follow Jesus and, and we're going to travel with Jesus and we're going to represent Jesus, then... Our life matters. What we do with our life matters. Our focus matters. Our focus on Him matters. Our focus on the harvest matters. And so, I invite you today to, to, to grab the plow, put your hand to the plow, 
But look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Follow Jesus. In the kingdom, and, and here's, here's what he would say, and here's what I would conclude in this section. In the kingdom, there is this overwhelming sense of intentionality. You have to keep your eye on the end of the row. You can't get distracted. You have to keep your eye on the coming of Christ. You have to keep your eye on being in heaven with him. He tells the disciples, he said, don't rejoice that you're going out and you're walking on serpents and you're drinking poison and, and, you're, um, and, you know, and you're casting out demons and you've got power over Satan and people's lives are being changed. Rejoice in the fact that when this is all over that your name is written down in heaven. And so... There is this overwhelming sense of intentionality. In the kingdom, there is this overwhelming sense of urgency. Uh, I want to I keep my hand to the plow and plow well. I want to focus like Jesus focused. In the kingdom, there is this overwhelming sense of simplicity. In the kingdom, there is this overwhelming sense of, of, of intimacy. Where Jesus is there. And we are there with others who are following him. In the kingdom, there is this overwhelming sense of compulsion to mission. In the kingdom, there is this overwhelming sense of impossibility. Our, our task is greater than our ability, but we put our hand to the plow and don't look back. So it's, it's focusing on, on Christ. So, so we, see, we see this destination and Jesus and his disciples moving to this destination where Jesus is going to die and Jesus is going to be resurrected and Jesus is going to ascend and Jesus is going to be taken up and he set his face to that because in that is our redemption and in that is the Father's plan and the Father's glory. Secondly, we see preparation beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, going down through verse number 16. And I've already read the, the, the text, and, and, and let me just kind of review it with, with a few bullet points to remind you of it. Jesus has this strategy. He's taking these people that are in relationship to one another, and he's sending them out together to be on mission for him to go into these places and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. So there is this, this strategy where people are sent out in connection to one another, and that is an absolute necessity in what we're doing. That, that would speak to the necessity of community. That would also speak to the necessity of partnership in, um, in mission. But secondly, there is not only this, this strategy, but there is this, this great opportunity. Um, and we, we see it there in, in the text. Um, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. He's he says the harvest is immense. The harvest is massive. We should feel the immense weight of the harvest. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you agree with me on that or not. But Jesus is telling these guys that he's sitting out in the harvest, that the harvest is great, that it's immense. And he says we should be workers in the harvest. We should be laborers. The word labor there is, 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 uh, is, is the Greek word ergon, just, just work. We should be workers. We should be laboring in the harvest. We should be working in the harvest. We are, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good work. I, I think it's interesting, and, and I, I just want to challenge you this morning um, just from some pain that's in my heart, um, it's interesting that Jesus didn't say, 
um, scholars. The harvest is truly plentiful, but the but the the scholars are few. Right? Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't use the the term polemicist. We all love a good fight, don't we? We all love a good argument. Jesus didn't say the harvest is great, but the, the, the polemicists are few or the apologists are few. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. Um, Jesus didn't say the harvest is great, but the experts are few. Jesus doesn't need any experts. In fact, he tells us later on in the text that the Father hasn't revealed it to the experts. The Father revealed it to the children. Do, do we get that? Jesus didn't say the harvest is plentiful, but the critics are few. We don't, we don't need any critics. We just don't. In fact, he, he didn't even say that we need more opinions. He just said we need more workers. We just need folks that want to work. They just want to labor. They just want to go and, and bring healing. Right? And proclaim the kingdom. I, I would I would just challenge you if you have the gift of criticism. You know, just come and lay it on the altar as a sacrifice and walk away from it. The harvest is great. My heart breaks for the harvest. My heart breaks for the harvest. There are people that you intersect with every day that see everything about your life. Would they say that you're a harvester? Would they say that you're a laborer in the harvest? What would they, what would they say about you? I, I know it's easy to find fault. Can I, tell you, can I tell you, can I just be honest with you, we probably get a lot of things wrong here at South Point. We probably get a lot of things wrong here at South Point. We do. I probably get a lot of things wrong in my life. But could I, could I, could I ask you for mercy? And could I ask you to join us in the harvest? And could I ask you to just be a simple childlike laborer in the harvest? Could I, could I beg you to do that? And could I ask you if you get around a, a, a polemicist or an expert or a critic or an apologist or somebody who's always just reminding you of just how much we really do get it wrong. Could you, just, could you just ask them to join us in the harvest? There are people in this city that Jesus Christ has died for and purposed to call to himself to be in this family. And so... I would just ask you, and, and just as simply as I can, there is a great opportunity. There is a great harvest, and we should be overwhelmed with the harvest. We should feel the weight of the harvest. We should feel this sense of there is so much to be done in the harvest, and I can't do it. And, and the announcing isn't bringing in laborers, and manipulation isn't bringing in laborers, and shaming isn't bringing in laborers. So we just got to cry out to God, God, would you change some people's hearts to be laborers in the harvest? Lord, we need help.
Would, would you do that? Could I ask you to just pray? Would you call out and say, God, we need help? The next time you're compelled to say, uh, you know, I don't like this or I don't like that or this is a problem or that's a problem, just, just would you just cry out to God and say, God, help us. <laughs> help us, God. Send us laborers. Send us laborers. The harvest is, is souls. Go into the harvest and gather people into the kingdom. Matthew 13 will bear this out. Go into the harvest, gather people into the kingdom so that they will not face judgment. We used to worry about judgment. Uh, I, I want to see, see my family come to Christ. I want to see my grandkids come to Christ. I want to see my next door neighbor come to Christ. I want to see the people that just moved across the street from me to come to Christ. I, I do. And uh, we're going to, you know, bake a pound cake and go over and take it to them and hopefully establish some kind of relationship. The harvest is souls of men and women who will spend eternity somewhere. And so Jesus is sending his disciples out. This The harvest is really important to him. He's sending them out into the harvest that is massive. And he's saying, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest because if men are not redeemed by the proclamation of the gospel, then they will experience judgment. He sends them out. It's several things the text points out. He sends them out in humility. They're, they're, they're going out as, as these helpless animals. They, they go out in shameless dependency. Right? They're, they're like, they're going out. Don't take anything with you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be shamelessly dependent upon the people that you go to. You know, you, you, you get tired of the jokes. What do you do for a living? You know, you, uh, you talk for an hour a week, right? Um, and then we have to stand up and, hey, would you give so that we can live? <laughs> would you give so that we can eat? There's a shameless dependency. That says, you know what? This this is like this is like valuable. It's not like it's not like it's not like a fifty six thousand dollar pickup truck, but it's this is valuable. You can't drive it, you can't eat it, you can't smoke it, you can't shine it up, you can't set it aside and let it rust, or or you need to paint it every five years, whatever. But but it, it has it has value because what's at stake here are the souls of of men and women. So you you go with this this humility, not in pride and arrogance like everybody else, but you also go with this this shameless dependency going into places. Uh, well, what did you bring with you to eat? I didn't bring anything to eat. I'm counting on you to provide me something to eat while I go out into the harvest to try to reap souls, to try to represent Jesus, to try to go where Jesus is. And he said, travel light. Don't pack a bunch of stuff. We've got ground to cover. We've got people to be in touch with. We've got a certain amount of time before we get to Jerusalem on a very specific date for some very specific things to be done. So in order for you to, to travel with urgency, then, then pack light. You can't take everything with you. And he says when you go, there is to be this, mass, this message, this message of, of compassion and this message of the kingdom. Now, we can, we can talk about the kingdom. A lot of people want to argue about the kingdom. That's, that's fine. I don't know what your view of the kingdom is. I, I, I'm not smart enough to keep up with all the views of the kingdom. So for those of you that want to sort all that out, I, I'm not saying that's, that's invalid. I would just say this, that, that wherever the kingdom is and whenever the kingdom started, 
or whatever the kingdom will start or whatever the kingdom will look like or whatever the kingdom did look like or whatever the kingdom looks like right now, the point of the kingdom is that Jesus is there. So don't, don't miss that. Don't, in all of our arguing and in all of our trying to figure out where we fit on the, the theological spectrum, you know, what is the kingdom? When did the kingdom start? Where is the kingdom now? What is the kingdom about? What's supposed to be happening in the kingdom? And that verse is for the kingdom, and that verse is not for the kingdom, and that, that we don't need to worry about that. Some folks will say, we don't even need to, need to worry about the harvest. We just need to just go dig deep and be like deeper life and sit in a room and, and you know, burn incense and memorize scripture. And all those things are fine, except for maybe the incense, depending on what kind you burn. But the, the point of the kingdom is that Christ has come. <laughs> Jesus has come near. Jesus is here. The kingdom is all about the presence of Jesus Christ. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about the power of Jesus Christ. And we better be dealing with that as we think of, talk about the kingdom. And so he's telling them to go heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The king has come. Folks, this is a great kingdom. This is a kingdom not like the kingdom of this world. This kingdom is a kingdom of healing. I had the privilege of preaching from from First John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12 last week. And, um, and I said two things, and I preached it here um, the, the love of Christ for us is life-giving and sin-bearing. If in this kingdom that we are in, if we never um, express or show that we are struggling with sin or that God in His presence in our life is giving us vi- even victory over sin, how can we offer the hope of the gospel to anybody who's struggling in sin and walk in and thinks that they're among a bunch of perfect people? We offer the healing of the kingdom because we have experienced the healing power of Jesus Christ. We offer the healing of the kingdom because as we struggle, we experience the healing power of Jesus Christ. There is, there is healing in the kingdom. Heal the sick. You say, well, what, what about... I'm, I don't want to get into the details of all of that except to say that the kingdom that we are in should continue to be a healing kingdom in our interior world where our greatest sickness lies spiritually. There's healing in the kingdom. There is is hope in the kingdom. There is love in the kingdom. There is redemption in the kingdom. There is freedom in the kingdom. There is a great kingdom because Jesus is there. And so we're proclaiming, come to Christ, experience Christ. He goes on to tell them as we go further in the text that you can expect rejection. And when people reject you, let God deal with it. Yeah, shake the dust off your feet. A lot of different things that, not a lot of different things, but it's, but it's very clear. It's judgment against the, the Jews in those areas that they're going through. Go on to the next town and make sure that you are hearing Jesus. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So don't say that you're following God and rejecting Jesus. Make sure that you are hearing Jesus. How you respond to the kingdom when it is offered is critical. And I stand before you today inviting you into the kingdom. We need a Christ-generated, inspired mission that compels us to see the harvest, to enter the harvest. 
that causes us to feel the weight of the harvest to the point that we really believe that the harvest needs to be harvested, not that I'm okay, but there is this burden, this compulsion for those who are not experiencing Christ. And that we need God to move in the hearts of others to help us proclaim good news and offer real hope and healing to those all around us. We need united hearts. That's why I would say, man, if your heart is just like this crotchety, you know, just like, you, if, you, know, you know what? If you, if you, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, if you are a complainer, you are unregenerate. That's what he said. That's what he said. If you're a complainer, you're just unregenerate. And I'm not, again, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to throw that on you, but I would ask you to examine your heart because the harvest is so great that we need to unite our hearts around entering into the harvest and proclaiming Christ and, and, and inviting people into relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And if we are not united in our hearts as harvesters and if we're not united in our prayer to pray for the harvest, then we miss why Jesus came. Jesus is Lord of the harvest. You want to know where you can find Jesus? Go into the harvest. Jesus is in the harvest. What is Jesus doing? He's working the harvest. And Jesus is inviting us to join him in the harvest. And that is inviting us to join him in intersecting our lives with the lives of others relationally. The third thing we see in the text is the celebration they returned Again, let me just hit the bullet points of the celebration. Um, I, I would say, first of all, they're like, hey, man, we saw, you know, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. We have authority to tread on serpents. The, the demons are subject. I, I would say this. I would say don't let this text compel you to trivialize the enemy. Satan can definitely hurt you, and he still wants to, right? He can definitely hurt you. He is seeking you out. Don't trivialize the enemy. But the enemy, here's what Jesus would say, but the enemy can do no final ultimate harm. In other words, don't trivialize the enemy, but don't trivialize God's power. Satan can do you no ultimate harm. Secondly, we see that Jesus points them to ultimate joy. He says, he says, nevertheless, don't rejoice that these sensational things are happening and you've got power over Satan. Re rejoice, have ultimate joy in that your names are written in heaven. Our rejoicing should not be found in the success of the mission or the sensational things that the Spirit legitimately did through them and will do through us. Our ultimate joy should be in knowing that our names are permanently on that list that is in heaven. Reservations have been made. A place is being prepared. And until then, we have the Spirit with us. And we are now serving in the harvest, but we're ultimately looking forward to heaven. We put our hand to the plow and we look forward to that time when we will be with our Lord and Savior. Thirdly, we should not be overwhelmed with power and powerful ministry, but with love and grace. With love and grace. This, he's, this, this, there's this powerful ministry that's taking place by the hand and power of the Spirit of God. 
But it is the grace of God that gives us the opportunity to have our names written down in heaven permanently, and nobody can take it away. There's a place reserved for us because we are in the kingdom. And then, and then finally, Jesus in verses um, in verse 22 is rejoicing with the Father. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so we see this seeming paradox. There's this harvest that we go out into to proclaim good news to everyone, to offer healing, and uh, to offer entrance, invitation into the kingdom. And then it is all dictated by the sovereign hand of Almighty God. Jesus is rejoicing in the plan of the Father, Jesus sees the plan of the Father and he's amazed at the hand and plan of Almighty God. From chapter 9, verse 51, when he sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, this is the plan of the Father. And he sees what's happening with his, these 72 that he sent out and they've come back and he just uh, continues to be amazed at how the Father works. It's unconventional. It's irrational. It's counterintuitive. Yet God does it all so that he would receive the glory. Then finally, we see in verses 23 and 24 this, this beautiful, this beautiful, beautiful invitation. He basically is telling the disciples in verses 23 and 24, you need to, if you know these things, if you know these things, if, if, you, if, you, um, are, are, if you are called to follow me, if you, if you are sent out into the harvest, If you see my hand work, if you proclaim good news and you see people's lives radically transformed from the inside out, if you see people coming from death to life and from darkness to light, and you see these communities forming where Christ is the center of those communities, he said, you need to be in all of that. You need to be in all of that. Don't, don't ever lose that sense of awe. He says, then returning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Think about that. Have, have you seen the light? <laughs> have you seen Christ? Have you seen Christ in the life of another believer? Have you seen the power of God work? Have you gone into the harvest and seen God remove the scales from somebody's eyes and take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh? I, I had It was kind of uh, humbling. I had one of my classmates there last Sunday when I preached. And um, she was just sitting there crying. She was just crying. And we got through, she came up, and she, her, her voice was cracking. She couldn't, you know, she, she could get her words out, but she was crying. She was just like, she just looked at me, and she said, she said, uh, God has done a great work. <laughs> and I'm just like, 
I'm like, okay, I'm not sure what you mean by that. But I know from the guy that she saw in high school to the guy that she saw preaching Sunday morning and opening the text, there was just this radical difference. Just a completely different person. And if that's you, we should never get over that. We should never get over that. And we should never get over going into the harvest and our lives intersecting with the lives of other people and us seeing the power of God radically transform them and the Spirit move in their lives. And Jesus is saying, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Jesus says, come, come on. I want you to see some things. I want you to see the, the radical power of the gospel. I want you to see the Spirit at work. I want you to see lives changed. I want you to see, Jesus is saying, I want you to see me in my hand, in my presence. I want you to see life through the lens of what it means to follow me, to walk with me. Don't, don't miss that, folks. Don't miss that. This is not an organization. Jesus didn't say, the harvest is great, start an organization. <laughs> he said, we need workers. So this is not about an organization. I hope you haven't gathered here because you think this is an organization. I hope you haven't gathered here because you're checking a box. I hope you're here this morning because either you're wondering what's going on and you're, you're curious about the reality of Jesus Christ or you've experienced, experienced the reality of Jesus Christ and you want to continue to experience him through the lives of others, other believers as we continue to pursue others to bring them in from the harvest and from judgment. And so I, I, would, I would implore you this morning to look at your heart and life um, what, is, what is your focus? What is your in, intentionality? What, what are you urgent about this morning? When you look in the text and you, you see these people making these excuses with all of their spiritual procrastination, by the way, when we see that in the text, we don't see what happened. Why? Because we're just left hanging because that's us. What's going to happen in you? What's going to happen in you? And then we see this great harvest. There's still a great harvest. There's still a need for laborers. I would, I, would, I would implore you, I would challenge you to come and go into the harvest with us to see lives changed. And I would, I would just compel you this morning to see, to see something that defies the beauty of the sunset that we've had a chance to look at over the past few days, that defies the beauty of nature, that defies the beauty of the things that people can create or simulate on a screen. God working in the hearts of men and women is the most powerful and beautiful thing that we could ever experience. And I want to invite you into that today. And if you're not experiencing that, come experience that and be in awe of that.